The cut. The cut. The cut. The cut. The cut. You know when you're watching TV and you're trying to turn your brain off for a bit and something just gets to you? A storyline that pisses you off, a commercial that reminds you to call your mom, the news, and then you just can't relax anymore. Cut producer Skylar Swinson keeps having that problem. Here's Skylar. Whenever I need a little distraction from reality, I watch reality TV. I like shows that let me turn my brain completely off, everything from survivor reruns to low-stakes British pastry competitions. But there was one show I watched this year that caught me completely off guard and threw me into a low-grade identity crisis. The first person I met in L.A. was Kane. Then I meet Kane's friends. And I'm just like, oh my god, this is real. Bling Empire. It's the reality TV version of Crazy Rich Asians. The show follows a group of L.A.-based Asian and Asian-American friends who are all wildly wealthy. If dynasties were still in existence in China, my husband's father would be an emperor and he would be next in line. But it actually wasn't the grotesque opulence or cringe rich people antics on screen that threw me into a state of mental anguish. It was the show's central character, Kevin Kreider. This is my first Chinese New Year party, and I'm just blown away. Kevin is the outsider on the show. He's a professional model new to L.A., and he's clearly not as crazy rich as his friends. This is the most expensive bowl of soup ever. Kevin's a bona fide himbo. He's got incredible abs, a sparkling smile, and much like Steve Harwell, the lead vocalist of the band Smash Mouth, Kevin ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. People think being a model is easy. It is not. It's really hard to flex your abs all day long, like this. What a win for Asian America. A hot Asian guy with sex appeal who can't do basic math on a popular Netflix series? How refreshing. But it was Kevin's personal background that I found, to use the parlance of our times, triggering AF. Firstly, I was born in Korea and I was adopted into a white family. This was the record scratch moment. Just as I was about to blissfully binge watch a show about terrible rich people, along comes this all too familiar plot point. He's adopted. Okay, this is the part where I explain that despite my extremely white guy name, Skylar Marion Swenson, I'm in fact Asian. And just like Kevin, I was born in South Korea in the 80s and was adopted by loving white parents in the U.S. So here's the thing about narratives about adopted people or adopted characters in media. It always feels like a sneak attack. This is my bestie, Amy Ginther. She's also a CAD. That's K-A-D, our shorthand for Korean adoptee. Like, I'm watching a show and things are happening and there's a character and then suddenly it's a plot point. And I was like, I didn't sign up for this. I just want to sit and watch and enjoy the show. And now I'm in my feels. Amy's the one who first told me about Bling Empire while simultaneously adding me to the group chat, Bling Empire Support Group. We all felt that we needed some space to process what was happening on the show with people who shared those identities. Because I could talk about it with other folks, even people of color, but who weren't adopted, it wasn't the same. Here's the deal with Kevin as a transracially adopted character on a TV show. It's not that he's the best or the worst. 
The thing that was so triggering for me was just, this is how it always goes. Like my whole life, I had never wanted to look for my birth parents. But now I'm starting to care because I do feel like that might be a missing piece in my life. So I think in the scenes where that was becoming an, a thing of him searching, I really rolled my eyes and was like, of course, that's the hero's journey is the search to find the family. Real adopted heads know the all-too-familiar cliché of birth family search and reunion. And Kevin didn't really strike me as the type of guy who'd done the work to emotionally prepare for that experience. Later in the series, there's a super hard-to-watch scene where he visits a hypnotherapist to try and unpack his own adoption trauma. You may begin. 16. You know, I, I have also done hypnotherapy to look at stuff in my adoption. So that was something specifically that I was like, okay, all right, that is a thing. But it, then you get concerned as you watch it because you're like, oh, are people just going to make fun of this because hypnotherapy is, especially in the context of that show, it looks like a silly person doing a silly thing. Being a cad is complicated. We're constantly balancing conflicting emotions about our racial and cultural identity, not to mention family histories. And that struggle is actually kind of beautiful. But what Amy and I see over and over again are TV shows and movies getting it wrong. Watching Kevin's story unfold was the experience of feeling hyper-visible all of a sudden, but in a way that doesn't actually make me feel seen. Like finally there's someone whose story reflects mine, but not. It's the same feeling I get every time adoption comes up in pop culture. Like in Little Fires Everywhere. You know, she may look Chinese, but she's our daughter. Modern Family. Lily? <laughs> Lily, isn't that going to be hard for her to say? Yikes. The whole docu-series about Woody Allen. Big yikes. There's also Orange is the New Black and Grey's Anatomy. Isn't that our baby? There is nowhere else yes. The earliest memory I have of seeing an adopted character on TV was Arrested Development. Well, maybe I'll get a son who will finish his college cheats. Anyang Bluth is the adopted son of Lucille and George Bluth, and he's this caricature of a Korean adoptee. He's got the bowl cut, doesn't speak any English. In fact, he hardly has any speaking lines for the majority of the show. Except, of course... Anyang. 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 That's not getting old. I adored Arrested Development, and even though it didn't age well like many TV shows from my youth, I still kind of love it. But when Anyang became this running joke... Isn't he great? And he goes with everything. I remember feeling like, oh, this show was not made for me. So why have I never seen myself in any of these stories? And where am I supposed to find characters that don't make me feel ashamed of my identity? because I feel like this has been going on for as long as I've been old enough to stare at a screen. Hearing from adult adoptees is a relatively new concept that most often, and I think this is true in pop culture, we see adoptees as babies, as children. So often it's other people doing the talking for us, what they think that we're experiencing, what they think we need. Angela Tucker is a transracially adopted advocate and mentor to adopted people of all ages. She gives keynote speeches and workshops for white parents of black and brown kids about cultivating anti-racist community. And she also helps TV writers and playwrights with 
adoption plot lines to try to figure out how not to completely fuck it up. She worked on the Broadway rock musical Jagged Little Pill, and... I've also consulted on TV shows like This Is Us, where their writer's room is very diverse, but doesn't have any transracial adoptees writing about Randall, the primary character that I was brought in to support. I really don't think until This Is Us that I've had a really positive, affirming experience of being seen. Angela was born in Tennessee and spent a year in foster care before she was adopted by a white couple. She grew up in a small town outside of Seattle. In my schools, uh, my sports teams, and all around me was pretty much all white. It was hard because I certainly was exoticized and fetishized. Everyone always looked at me as the token black girl in the room, and it made for some really interesting experiences. I think about when my parents and I went to Disneyland and they allowed me to bring one good friend. And so I brought my best friend who is white. And I remember trying to get on a ride and the ride attendant cutting me off between my family because they said, oh, this is the last family to go on this ride. Can you wait? You'll get on the next one, no problem. And they had my parents and my best friend as that last family. And I was, you know, yelling like, those are my parents. No, I'm with them. And my parents, of course, were like, that's our daughter. But just being visibly so different, different race than my parents, it was often a conversation um, like that. And I think like one of the biggest comments that we typically got as people certainly would stare, but the next thing would be coming over to my parents and thanking them for what an amazing thing they've done. You know, just that assumption that I, this black girl, needed a savior, needed white saviors, and other folks would consistently be praising my parents for that. Ah, yes, the white savior trope. Think Sandra Bullock's Academy Award-winning performance in The Blind Side. I think what you're doing is so great. To open up your home to him, honey, you're changing that boy's life. No. He's changing mine. And the frustrating part is that's just not how it feels. To be somebody who has lost their parents, was in foster care, then adopted, it's troubling to be looked at as a success story or to always be seen as somebody who like was resilient and made it when in reality we're, we're missing such a big complex part of the story around the difficulty being completely cut off from your original culture, that, that sadness that comes from not knowing your roots those pieces are so left out that it, the stories can seem so linear and can seem so, so exciting. And like, there's a resolve, like, yay, we did it. It worked kind of thing. Like it's, it's, it's an experiment instead of actual people's humanity. What are the kind of common adoptee archetypes or character tropes in pop culture? Typically, we see the poor orphan, so the child who is abandoned. I think This Is Us 
started that way, we might also see some folks coming out of foster care, which in, typically when they come out of foster care, they're depicted as almost feral and in complete need of like restitution and assimilation back to becoming like a, a member of society. You just reminded me of a movie I watched a lot as a kid, which was Free Willy, where the boy, he's white and is ultimately adopted by white parents. But like there was such a need for the parents to save this kid off the streets and for the kid in turn to behave well, right? Like if he hadn't like learned how to train this like orca, (laughs) then like maybe he wasn't going to be loved by his foster parents was kind of what I remember. Such a great example of that zero to hero. Like Mm -hmm. we, that savior, that narrative perpetuates because we need to see that it worked. And so many adoptees in real life struggle with performing. And I've talked to my my youth mentees. They're 12, 13, 14 years old. And they'll talk about this need for perfectionism because the feeling is, if I'm not perfect, will my parents leave me? Will they abandon me? Will they no longer want me? Mm. And in pop culture, we view those behaviors as total success. Like they've made it, they've rose above. When in reality, it's actually quite scary. And we know that many adoptees struggle with thoughts of suicide and self-harm because of this feeling, not only do I want to make my parents proud, and, and some adoptees have even used the words, make sure they got a good return on their investment. But some adoptees, especially I think international adoptees, have talked about wanting to make both their biological families and their adoptive families proud of them. And so the amount of pressure that puts on to just be perfect, we see that in movies. I think Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, like all of those have similar storylines of lose your parents, but look at what you've become. It's hard because it doesn't leave a lot of space for adoptees to just be, to be ourselves, to wonder who we would have been if we weren't adopted. This perpetuates that idea that we need to be grateful for the fact that anyone adopted us at all. All of this really hit me hard because I can definitely relate. I grew up within this broader cultural narrative that adoption is this beautiful act of charity, that I got lucky that I ended up where I did. And TV and movies definitely reinforced this idea. There's just so much loss within our experience that is too often left out of the picture. But it doesn't need to be that way. It's complicated because our narratives are complicated because we'll say things like we love our adoptive parents but also really wish we were never adopted. Transracial adoptees finally get a seat at the writer's room table to set the record straight. That's after the break. Transracially adopted people I know usually have a few specific traits or specific details about our past 
that reveal to the world how we were raised by white folks. My dad giveaways are I learned how to rock climb from a really early age, and I listened to a lot of fish in high school. For Rebecca Carroll, I had the preppy handbook. What's that? Ah! Oh my God, you're so young. Oh my God. (laughs) So the preppy handbook was this book that came out in like 1985 and everybody was obsessed with it because it was all about like Isad Lacoste and L.L. Bean and J. Crew and how to live as a preppy person. Okay, okay, that makes yeah. sense. It was a very, very, very specific symbol of the moment. And, you know, you had to have it in the same way you had to have like white leather Nike sneakers with the red swoosh. Rebecca is one of my favorite writers on race, culture, and adoption. Earlier this year, she published her memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. And it is about my experience being adopted into a white family at birth and raised in an all-white rural New Hampshire town and the ways in which I navigated racism that I experienced starting at a very young age and didn't have any kind of context for. My parents were quite liberal, you know, good white liberals who didn't have any kind of conversancy in in race and or Black culture. Early on in her memoir, Rebecca remembers the first time she thought she saw a glimpse of her identity on TV. Electric Company was this great TV kids show. And Morgan Freeman played this character, who was Easy Reader. Easy Reader, that's my name. And he was a guy who was really cool and wore dark glasses and, you know, this short cropped fro and wore these swanky, cool 70s clothes. And he was the first, like, black male adult person I'd ever seen. And all I knew was that I had a black father and a white mother, birth parents. And I immediately thought, that's my birth father. (laughs) That's gotta be my birth father. I mean, you know, a child, as a child thinking that, I felt like we, we locked eyes, but of course he couldn't see me, but I felt like he did. And that was validating in a way that, you know, I didn't get that from my parents. My mom, you know, she sewed me a black doll and she reminded me that she wrote a poem about a black princess. and But there was no connective thread, right? There was no, let's talk about the way in which your identity is going to interface with the real world. My parents created in the good white liberal way. They're not dumb people, they're smart people. But they created a bubble where I can't survive. I can't live in that bubble. In fact, it's really dangerous for me to be in that bubble. As a kid, I totally felt this way too. My parents tried as best they knew how to include Korean culture in the house when I was growing up. I remember a book about Korean folktales, a ninja toy set. But in suburban Denver, there was no one around who looked like me. So the TV was the only place to escape from that bubble to form some sense of a racial identity, or maybe even Korean parents. But I'm pretty sure Margaret Cho's impression of her Korean mother was probably the closest thing I could find. But since then, TV has gotten a little closer to reality. 
And that's partly thanks to adopted and fostered people like Angela, who consult for shows like This Is Us. In season one, two white parents take home an abandoned black baby from the hospital. I like to think that you took the sourest lemon that life has to offer and turned it into something resembling lemonade. It just felt a little too hallmark, an easy plot point, and I stopped watching the show. It wasn't until this past year, after Black Lives Matter became mainstream, that the show really addressed racism within transracial adoption. Angela's work in the writer's room is what helped make Randall a much more complicated and nuanced character. In season five, Randall begins really exploring like his own personal emotions and connecting some of his perfectionist behaviors to the adoption. And so he attends like an adoptee support group where they talk about things like their ghost kingdoms, which is this concept about how many of us adoptees would just fictionalize and make up who we felt our birth parents to be because we didn't have any truth. Since I never knew who my birth parents really were, I imagined that the nice librarian from the neighborhood library and the black meteorologist on the local news were my parents. And Randall also confronts his siblings in season five about what it felt like to be the only black person in their family. And that was really nuanced conversations that kind of mirrored what we're having in culture right now, conversations black folks are trying to have with white America about You don't see us for us. And the last thing I needed, man, the last thing was for my brother to use my blackness to to other me also. I don't know what the hell we're talking about, You had racial blind spots, Kevin. He was having conversations about how there were times when he felt tokenized by them. And the responses from his two siblings, who are white twins, were responses that echoed what I hear things like, why aren't you just grateful for all that you've got? Look what you have, this beautiful life that you have. You probably wouldn't have had it if you weren't adopted by our parents. What's your problem? Your childhood, Randall, it was glorious. It was glorious, man. I was there for it. You were the golden child. Your adoption, everything, it made you more special, not less. I never wanted to be special, man. I just wanted to blend in like everybody. Some of the comments I read after a couple of the episodes were similar, like, Can't Randall just be grateful he got great parents? It's really hard for transracial adoptees to speak the truth because there's always a risk that you're going to offend somebody. Absolutely. I'm low-key terrified of making this episode because society is so conditioned to think of us in all the ways that you said as having to be grateful as having to be like high achieving as to earn our keep and to not question the benevolent white savior parents right yes talking to my white family members about racism is something i still struggle with i don't always have the right words or the emotional capacity So the fact that this major network TV show is starting to show these conversations feels like a huge leap. Like, thanks TV for doing the work. But something that keeps coming up for me is why transracial adoption is always presented as a thing that just happens. I'd love to see my experience represented on screen, but is better representation for adoptees the full picture? 
What's still missing for me are stories that question why children, especially black and brown children, are separated from their birth families in the first place. Here's Rebecca again. In the very few shows and films with storylines of transracial adoption, the black parents are always hyper-stereotyped, right? You know, and this is us. Randall's birth parents are drug addicts. But I do think that however credible or plausible these storylines are, they are also perpetuating this, this idea that black folks are disenfranchised, that they, that they can't possibly find a way to keep their black children. And it feeds into, of course, the idea that adoption and and particularly transracial adoption is inherently good. It is is inherently benign and better for. You know, here's the other thing, and and I have to keep myself in check a little bit because I'm a creator and because I'm a writer and as somebody who wants to see these stories and put these stories out there. But just that the show can exist but it's not the only adoption story. And I think that if there was one thing that I really wanted to make clear in writing my memoir and now adapting it for TV is that we're bigger than our adoption stories. We're bigger than our adoption. Rebecca now has the opportunity and challenge of deciding how her own adoption story is portrayed on screen. Earlier this year, her memoir got picked up for a limited TV series. And it wasn't Hallmark. It's a little bit daunting because I'm setting a very high bar for myself. My bar is I May Destroy You, which I think is one of the most extraordinary pieces of media and television I've seen in, I don't, you know, a decade at least. And I think that she deals with trauma and, and humor and complexity and, you know, so, so it's daunting, but I am excited. Are there parts of your story, your identity, as a transracially adopted person that you want to be seen the most? That I have always felt drawn to finding and being in community with Black folks um, from, from before I even knew how to recognize what that urge felt like or what that longing really is what it is. And I absolutely always felt that. And I want for black adoptees and, and transracial adoptees to know that their urge to be in community with folks who look like them is not a betrayal, but it is the most visceral and instinctive thing. For much of my adult life, I've searched for that feeling of community. Turns out it's called the Bling Empire Support Group. After we collectively processed Kevin, the group text became a space where we'd post pictures of Korean food we've eaten recently, where we gossip about other cads and share recommendations for Korean scalp scaler products for our transracially adopted scalps. Bling Empire Support Group is where we go when we feel like no one else in our family gets it. When we're sick of our non-adopted friends asking us if it's okay to adopt kids. And it's where we'll definitely go to process season two. What's my dream season two for Kevin? (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) I mean, my dream plot point for Kevin in season two would be that he starts running with the adoption 
activists, the, the radical adoption activists <laughs> who we know and starts like reading <laughs> critical adoption studies books. Like I just want, I would watch him just being in Korea. I, I, I get worried about thinking about him reuniting with his family in the sense that I feel like that's potentially exploitative. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not as, so much interested in um, this climatic character building moment of him meeting family for the first time. But I am interested in him being in Korea, just like roaming around the streets of Seoul. Maybe just like, I would watch a whole cooking series of him going to different parts of Korea and like learning to hate Korean food less. <laughs> Um, like, maybe like a, a combo of like Anthony Bourdain meets um, <laughs> yeah. mukbang. <laughs> like, he's just sitting and eating things in a little <laughs> Korean office table. I would watch that. I would watch that. This episode was produced by Skylar Swenson along with Jasmine Aguilera, Noor Buzidi, and B.A. Parker. Edited by the fabulous Kelly Prime. Our executive producers are Hannah Rosen and Nishat Kerwa, mixed by Alex Higgins. We are a product of New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support all their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>